0: Hi, welcome to Stammer Stories. My name is William Lavin, and I'm your host and founder of this podcast. In this podcast, we talk about stammering from all perspectives. I'll be talking to people who stammer, people who work in the stammering field, and people who just have a general interest in the topic. Today's episode is our Christmas special, and for our Christmas special episode, I am joined by a very special guest, one of my role models who I've been looking up to for a few years. So I'm feeling very, so I'm feeling very privileged that he's here with me today, and, and my guest is Ed Ball. So welcome to the podcast, Ed.
1: Good to be with you, William, and a Merry Christmas to you and to all of your listeners. What a privilege to be on the Christmas special.
0: Thank you. So can you just do a, do a brief in, in, in introduction about yourself and what you do? Sure, lots of people will know, but just, just give a brief, a brief summary.
1: Sure, I was in politics for 20 years, I um, used to be a journalist at the Financial Times when I was kind of um, out of university. Then I worked for Gordon Brown in opposition. And then I was at the Treasury as a um, advisor, chief economic advisor for eight years. Then I got elected as an MP and I was a member of parliament in Yorkshire, minister, cabinet minister for education for three years, then the shadow chancellor. And then in 2015, after five years of opposition, um, I lost my seat, um, Morley and Outwood, in the that general election. And since then, I've done a whole wide range of things. Um, I do some academic teaching at Harvard and at King's College in London. Wow. I'm the chair of the Holocaust Foundation um, with Lord Eric Pickles, but I've also done quite a lot of television, which is sometimes very serious. Like um, I've done a program about social care inside the care crisis, sometimes, like strictly come dancing, it's at the other end of the spectrum and lots of bits in between. Wow
0: and as I mentioned at at the start you've been one of my role models for many many years and when you first announced having a stammer did you expect the response you got from when you first sort of spoke about it?
1: I didn't announce that um, talk publicly about my stammer until 2009 which was two years after I'd been in the cabinet and I think I Spent two years not talking about it because I thought that it would, it would be too difficult to talk about. You know, how could a politician, a cabinet minister talk about a vulnerability, um, like a challenge like that? And um, But the response since has been both about my response and the wider response. So I think the wider response has been very warm and positive. And I think it's, it's good to talk to you and hear that me talking about it helped you as you were kind of dealing with your stammer. Um, so that's great. And I've liked talking to parents and um, young people, adults, about it over the last 10, 12 years. I think the thing which I didn't expect was talking about it made it much easier for me. I think being public, um, which is what my therapist told me, being public would take away the stress and the pressure. And what I find these days is that every six months or so is nice to do something like this and talk to you, talk publicly, because it's a bit like um it's a bit like having a bit of a top-up. I have a bit of top-up of talking about it, and that helps me for the next six months. And if I go for a long time without talking about it, then I think I'm more likely to stammer when I'm performing.
0: Like it is really fascinating how, like you say, talking about it made you feel much better. Like you felt did you stammer less when you started talking about it?
1: Well, I think I think yes, but um, I think what had happened with me was that the, the avoidance was the thing which was more destabilising. So I didn't find out that I actually had a stammer until a couple of weeks into my cabinet job. So I'd already been elected as an MP, I'd have been a minister for a year. I'd had lots of challenges with speaking because sometimes in the house of commons or on the media my speech kind of dried up and i just couldn't get the words to come out and it was never an overt stammer where i um stammered like that i never did that and i hadn't done as a teenager but as a teenager when i was doing a speaking in class sometimes the words wouldn't come out and it was only when i was a cabinet minister that i was told complicated story about how we got there but my um therapist jan Jan logan told me this is an interiorized stammer this is a stammer but it's all happening below the surface um it's a block and what would happen is that in my desire to to avoid the block i'd make it more likely by becoming tense and then when the block occurred sometimes i would sort of be very kind of destabilized by it and you could see that in my eyes and in my um, face and she said to me in the first meeting we ever had sitting in my cabinet office at the department of education she said it's she said my judgement is is only when you speak publicly about this that you'll start to really feel better and she was right but i spent 2 years disagreeing with that and not being able to do it and i think it's partly because once i knew in my mind that if I had a stammer, I'd already spoken about it. And therefore I could just say, look, I have a bit of a stammer, it happens sometimes. If I knew I could say that, then it didn't mean I had to try and cover it up. And so it meant that I felt much less pressure to avoid, less pressure to avoid and less pressure to conceal ended up meaning that, um, that I, had, I had fewer blocks and big stammering moments. It didn't mean that I didn't have them. But in my mind, my view was, well, you know, if I have a block, I'll just, you know, the way in my mind, I would say I ride my blocks. You know, when I'm talking to you, I have a bit of a block. I just ride it. I wait because it'll be fine. I've learned now that people don't notice. And the thing they notice is me reacting in horror or shock or concealment to the block. And so it didn't stop. I don't think it actually ever stopped me stammering as much of the margin, I'm sure it did. But um, I think it was much more that I didn't feel pressure to avoid. And that was the thing which I think was, the thing which you would throw me at other people. I remember doing television interviews before I knew it was a stammer, where standing on the green outside parliament with John Sopel or Andrew Neil, and I would suddenly block and my eyes would look fearful and they would kind of, you could see in their eyes, oh my goodness, what's going on? You know, is he having a seizure? And it was actually just me having a block. And um, when that went away, life was easier.
0: Wow. And I always find that the less I think about my stammer, the less I so like doing any presentations or like doing in, any media in, interview, the less I think about my stammer, because sometimes I, I'm way more conscious about my stammer than I am the actual thing. So it's always on the forefront for my mind. So the first thing I say after doing my presentation is, oh, did I stammer? At all? And then I don't no, you didn't at all. But it's always, so I, so. I tell people, just don't have it on the forefront from your mind because the less you think about it, the less you're conscious about staring. And you just both spoke about how it's been recent. But before you sort of... You, you, just,
1: uh, just on that point, William, see, I'm not sure that's quite how it works for me. And really? it's certainly the case that I don't want it to be forefront in my mind. But I think, for me, trying not to think about it or not to talk about it makes it more forefront. So to give you an example, I mean, I've been doing so much television for 25 years and loads. And I was um, filming last Friday, a film for the one show. We filmed for six hours in crew. I meet the director and the producer for the, for the first time ever. And I well, consciously have said to them, I don't actually remember this moment, but before I do my my first piece of camera and I'll I'll have said to them, you know, I've got a bit of a stammer, so I might need two goes. Because I want them to know that that is the case. Because then, if I do, they'll know, it'll be fine, we'll do it again. And nobody's going to worry about it. And so in a way, the, the telling people about it is what makes it less forefront in my mind. I mean, I think if I was... But I think this is a real dilemma. Let's say that you are going to a job interview internally or externally where you work. You can try and not make it forefront in your mind. I'm not sure that works for me. The alternative is you just say, just before the interview starts, just so you know, I have a bit of a stammer. Every now and then in interviews, my speech will kind of stop for a second. But, you know, it's just who I am and it's fine. And they'll go, OK. and then. Having done that, I would think it's much less likely that I'll stammer in the interview because I'm not gonna worry about it if I do, because I've told them. So the, the issue is, how do you, if you for me, I think I learned that um, talking about it made it less likely to be forefront in my mind. And it was the concealing of it, which meant that it was more sort of there and sort of lurking to kind of grab me. I was on Good Morning Britain, um, live, I did presenting last month, three shows with Susanna Reid, got kind of talk back earpiece in my ear, I can hear the director and everybody two and a half hours of live TV ten years ago, I could never have done that because of my stammer, I'm totally impossible wow. but I made a conscious decision to say to them all, I have a stammer every now and then it goes wrong, but you know, it should be fine I want them to know because if I don't think they're worrying then I'm not going to worry
0: yeah exactly and I I'm 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 definitely like you like I always tell like my the first line I I think I told my line my, my line manager when I first on my job was just just an FYI do stammer, <laughs> nothing's wrong with my voice that's going to say it she was like so that's really the first thing you're going to tell. but was I? Like, it just makes me more comfortable just owning it straight away exactly. and, and it's a really odd thing how, how this relaxes your mind like when you've got it out same way like you stammer, and it's, when I was doing my best friend's best man speech, my first joke was, "Does he you know that I do have a stammer, so hopefully we will be done by night time, but we'll get there. <laughs> exactly. But it just, but it but just made me somewhat somewhat relaxed, and I don't think I stammered once, because I had sort of announced that I stammered, and that... said I do have a stammer, and it was just the weirdest thing, how after that my brain was just like, now you've said it, people will... Maybe not expect it, but are conscious that you may do it.
1: I think it's it's a really interesting question about, about how you think about kind of therapy and learning and support. Because I think, um, you know, earlier on, before I knew it as a stammer, I would have conversations with people. I'd have people talk about breathing. and But it was like something which was going to be cured. And the thing I... And he never gets cured. That's not the point. And when people say to me, you know, every now and then in a newspaper article will say that he used to have a stammer. I found that really annoying. I didn't used to have one. I've got one. It's not, it doesn't. It's not something you catch. It's not something which gets cured. It's just who you are. However, who you are can, you know, be different in different circumstances. You can deal with aspects of your own person better or less well. So I think I deal with it better now. But it's just... The owning of it and saying, "This is who I am." There was, uh, I know you've heard me say this story before, but for your listeners, um, I've gone through this whole long process for years, um, talking, kind of having dealing with it, and then um, talking about it publicly. And then I met Colin Firth. Um, I got in touch with him to after the King's speech to say to persuade him to come and be. Um, do some things with, with us at Action for Stammering Children. And we, oh. we had lunch on a kind of empty Friday in the House of Commons. And, um, and I said to him, the best bit of the King's speech is at the end, where the speak, the King does a really good speech, but he goes in and he does his formal photographs. Then he takes his jacket off. They turn the cameras mm. off. He gets relaxed, delivers his speech. When he comes out, the therapist, Logue, says... That was really good, but you did stammer on the W in the third paragraph. And the king says, I had to throw one in. So they knew it was really me. The authentic him had a stammer in that W. And he did it deliberately, he said, to make really? sure they knew really? it was really him. Which oh, is wow. sort of like the ultimate owning of the stammer. You know, it's, it's who I am. And, and I said this to Colin Firth, who said that actually they'd found the diaries of the therapist Logue. And Colin Firth had taken them home during the filming at the weekend, read this line where Logue records the King saying, I threw one in so they knew it was really me. And Colin Firth went back in the next, on the Monday morning and said to the director, I found this great line. And that went into the film. So I think the reason why Colin Firth won his Oscar is because he had the insight to see that for somebody like you, who's gone through lots of years dealing with this, someone like me, it's the point where you say, it's who I am it's the authentic me that is the bit where when you really own it that the pressure starts to recede and actually you know if you then stand there in a situation after that well i mean what do you expect i mean it's who i am and i think all the years of trying to either conceal it or cure it
0: that doesn't work no and i i I had to say, my stammer makes me who I am. I and mean, then if I hid my stammer, I wouldn't be showing my true self. And because we've been talking about how you've only found your stammer re- within the last um, few years, how, looking back, have you found it in these situations, like at school or or growing up, when you realised that that could have been your stammer?
1: Oh well, lots of lots of times. But I just I knew there was this thing. My dad rang me when I did my first Any Questions live on the radio um, when I was a candidate to be an MP. And I had done really well on the first question and then was had a couple of big blocks in a question about Iraq. I mean, kind of such that the audience could be thinking, why is he not speaking for a second? And my dad rang me the next day and said, um, I don't know what it is, but you've got the same thing as me. He said, and I think it's oh. going to stop you really getting on in politics. And he, but he didn't find out that he had a stammer until I did an interview in the Daily Telegraph saying I had a stammer. And by that point, he was um, 70. Wow. But he had gone through his whole, whole professional life. He, I mean, he was he an was academic lecturer. He did lots and lots of public events. I think he, he avoided live television. And when he delivered his lectures, he, he did them off the cuff. He didn't like to read a text. And when I think of being in class, reading out lines in a play, it's a nightmare.
0: Oh yeah. And the, thought, the debating
1: society was kind of difficult when you had to speak in front of people. I think all that time, I sort of plowed on. When I was the, the JCR president at my college, and I, so I was running the meeting, but I didn't think. But I wouldn't have wanted to read from the Bible in the chapel because I'd have found that much harder. So there was lots and lots of things. I think it. Pro- I'd probably back then just saw it as annoying and a blip. It was only when I started doing live television um, in my um, late 30s that it suddenly became a big problem, because until then it never ever destabilised me in the way um, in the way it did then.
0: When when your dad realised that he had a stammer, did it sort of click to you? Had you noticed his 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 stammer, or or or, or did you just think that it was just maybe not normal, but the same as you? So maybe it was just. Well, I think but... that. Um,
1: well, so we know that stammers tend to pass um, often from dads to sons. I mean, not not universally. But it's more likely to, it's often hereditary, and it's often amongst um, men. Um, But there's lots of girls who stammer as well, and and mums who pass it to daughters, but that's less likely to be the case. But I don't think I knew that at all until I had a stammer. And I don't think, until my dad said that to me, I don't think I'd ever thought at all about um, whether he had a stammer, because I think I'd ever noticed. since then, I've no- I noticed a lot more. Um, but I've realised he, he was different to me. And he was an absolutely classic case of the, um, the, the interiorized stammerer who just conceals. And the thing we know about people who have a, you know, a covert stammer, they can go through the whole professional life and never ever reveal it to their work colleagues. They probably don't even reveal it to you Their their spouse, I don't think he ever talked to my mum about his stammer. I don't think he even really knew that's what it was. He just knew that in certain places and settings, things went wrong. And so he avoided them. And when I talk to him now, he would never, I mean, we were a church going family. We went to church every week. My dad became the church warden, but he never, ever read a lesson in church. My mum did quite often. My dad never did well i, I know now it's because he had a stammer and therefore he wow. knew it would go wrong but i don't think he knew that he wasn't doing it because he had a stammer he just knew that was something he didn't like doing and therefore he didn't do it and that sort of the concealing is very very normal and i think part of the, the people can get through their whole life and have, and that's fine with a, with a covert stammer but you may miss out on fluff and um, really? the problem is, once you become a cabinet minister, it's quite hard to conceal it, I found.
0: <laughs> well, that's really fascinating. And I, well, I'm the first one from my whole family to stammer. and But either there's a
1: grandfather it, or a great-grandfather.
0: Maybe, but I'd love to know how I could, I'm out, but there was a, but it's, Stammering is one of those topics, right? It's a very unique topic, but it's always surprises you how many people you may come across who know someone with a stammers, but oh, actually yeah. these stats are quite low. And like someone has a cousin or someone has a parent or someone has a sibling who's stammers. And I just find that a bit fascinating. And I, I I had a guest who's a who is Italian and she's bilingual, but she only stammers when she speaks Italian and not English. <laughs> and I'd just love to know how like the brain sort of sees that and and, and just shows like like maybe it's a different pronunciations of certain letters or like if it's a softer it's fascinating. it's like
1: it's like that there are you know we know Gareth Gates or Ed Sheeran, they don't stammer when they sing. Yeah. And um, there are lots of um actors. Uh, Emily Blunt, I think, is one who who doesn't stammer when she's in character but she'll stammer when she's just being her. So there is something about um, how the brain works. And I think it's to do with the authentic you. So if the authentic you has a stammer, then you stammer when you're being the authentic you. And maybe speaking English for your bilingual, for your your Italian guests, isn't isn't as authentically her as her, her, her native tongue in the same way as um, being, being a pop star isn't quite your authentic you if you are, you know, an ordinary guy from from Suffolk or Essex.
0: Like they were saying about um, yeah, uh, Marilyn Monroe's breathy tones—they were her techniques for her stamina, and it sort of makes sense and you feel because it's a softer star, and and you can see how that floats. And but I'd love to talk to you about your. Uh, a career, so you've done, so a career in politics and then going to win a cooking show with, with Mary Berry. What That's has right. been your uh, career highlights, but also has your stamina surprised you in uh, any of the situations from your career by you were least expecting it to surprise you in?
1: Well, I think in a way, um... Doing do, doing Strictly taught me something quite important about my my stammer. No, and I, um, surprisingly, I mean, look, it was quite surprising that I ended up doing Strictly, let alone that it taught me something about my stammer. But, um, you know, I'd had this email from Strictly saying, did I want to do it a year after I lost my seat and I was going to say no. And Yvette said, why would you turn down going on the biggest television show in the world? Politics is completely wild. You'll really enjoy it why not go and do it? And I thought, well, maybe maybe she's right. But um, just after um, uh, Strictly had finished, I went to the Michael Palin Centre um, for with Colin Firth, actually. Um, we're both vice-presidents vice of Action for Stamming Children. We went along, as we've done a few times, to the two-week residential course, which I think is the one you did, and yeah. um, Action for Stamming Children. And we went and we as we always do we talk to um the um the students the young people they're all basically teenagers if i remember but then we also go and talk to the parents who are there for the two-week residential course and um they tend to like us to come about just after halfway because i think i think for the by just after halfway the students are starting to really make progress and enjoying it but the parents are actually having the toughest time because quite a lot of them have to realize that they didn't always do the right thing in supporting their child. And, you know, lots of the dads would have said, you know, come on, sort yourself out, get your words out. And they realize how hard that is and they have to go off and the parents have to go and stammer themselves around Clark and well, ordering a cup of coffee. And I think they find it, I've seen lots of parents groups, they find it very hard, very emotional. And then me and Colin turn up um, and talk to them. And Colin explains that, uh, he played a king who stammered and addressed the nation. And I said, well, you know, I was a cabinet minister. I didn't even know if I had a had a stammer until I got into the cabinet. But actually, um, you know, it, it was fine. And for me, I didn't find out until my early 40s. And your son or daughter has found out before they are even 18. So, I mean, they're 30 years ahead of me. Goodness knows what they can go on and do. But in one of those conversations, one of the mums said... Um, asked me about Strictly and I said that I actually, I don't think that without the stammer, I would have done Strictly or done it, enjoyed it. Because yeah, I think once yeah. you've gone through the, the stress, which you know, all those parents saw with their, young, with their children, the young people, the stress of dealing with it, of concealing it, of the challenge of it, the kind of barracking you get, And then the the relief when you start to make progress and you can be public. And that process is so hard that that nothing else compared to that ever feels so difficult. Once you've done the House of Commons with people yelling at you three or 400, but in the end you come through it. Compared to that, you know, doing the cha-cha-cha live in front of 9 billion people didn't really seem difficult. And I can remember standing there thinking, just thinking this is the laugh and looking forward to it and thinking, what if it was, goes wrong? But thinking this is not the defining thing about me and therefore it's going to be fine. I don't think if I'd gone, if I hadn't had the, my stammer and gone through that, I would have had the confidence to then have gone and done strictly. So I said to these parents, so I think I've got to say to you, if, if I was having my time again, I'd definitely choose having the stammer. You know, I might not choose my surname, but I'd choose the stammer because actually the stammer ended up making me better at what I do. I'm, I'm a better on television. I'm a better communicator. I do better radio interviews. I did strictly come down and sing all because I'd had the stammer and dealt with it. And so if it was, if, if I had my time again, I'd choose it again. I would choose it. And these parents would say, well, you actually, you, you would choose to have it. And I'd say, well, it's just part of who I am and I wouldn't yeah. want to change that part of it. Definitely not. I, truth is, I wouldn't choose. I wouldn't change my surname either. It was just quite hard when I was thirteen, but um, but now I definitely wouldn't choose, change that either. But I think for the parents to think, not only are our sons and daughters going through this course where they're making real progress, and not only am I having to kind of cope with the fact that maybe I didn't always support them right in the past, but I am now. But we've got somebody talking to us who was a cabinet minister and he said he'd rather have the stammer next to a guy who won an Oscar, um, playing a king who addressed the nation and led the nation with a stammer. And they think, well, actually, maybe it's not so bad. And I think that's, um, I remember that day, day very well. And um, so if it hadn't been for Strictly, I wouldn't have realised that I'd choose a stammer.
0: That's amazing. Does like, certain triggers just make you realise Oh, the Michael Palin Center made me realize that I loved my stammer because they, they just said that it makes you who you really are. And my favorite quote is that people who stammer give a world and um, give a world a you know, unique way of listening. And yeah. when, when no matter how, how how many times it takes you to, to take your say your words and it's worth uh, repeating which I just love those quotes because it just shows that nothing is impossible, especially with a stammer. And we, so as we've just said that, we both went, so I went to the Michael Palin Centre for therapy and so did you. And the therapy definitely changed my life, your techniques. How much of of a difference did the techniques at the Michael Palin Centre made made to you?
1: Well, I think... um... that, I have thought about that quite a lot, and I think uh, I slightly resist or react against the word technique. Um, I I was already a cabinet minister. Things had gone wrong in education questions, and Gwyneth Dunwoody, the Member of Parliament, had said very loudly, he's supposed to be the Secretary of State and he can't even get his words out, which echoed around the House of Commons chamber. And I'd gone back and... um, the office and they said we'll find out what this is and three days later they came back and said it's an interiorized stammer look at the British stammering association website i didn't believe them and they got in a therapist called jan logan who's from city lit and jan is very much in the sort of group of um therapists and the style with with the michael palin center so it's different from maguire for example which is much more physical breathing yeah and um so I I, she said to me I do a class for adults at City Lit every Thursday evening and you'll need to come for 12 weeks and it will get worse to begin with but then you'll get better and I said I'm I'm in the cabinet I can't come to some I can't do that so I did it with her alone and we talked about um, and to begin with because I had lots of ways in which I coped already I didn't want her to destabilise those things, because I had to go and do the House of Commons the next day. I had to go on the television that night. And um, we talked a bit about certain ways of enunciating and speaking and breathing. And I was kind of quite worried about that and didn't do much of that technique stuff. Um, And I think you do some of that, you tell me in a second, some of that at the Michael Palin Centre. But the main thing I did was around what she would call um, NLP. Um, neuro-linguistic programming, th- thinking about um, how I how it was when I succeeded, recognising what I did to destabilise myself, speaking, videoing, listening back and thinking about what it was like, slowing things down, basically learning to, to, to learning to accept disfluency and then understanding that almost everybody else is disfluent anyways, therefore this is normal and finding the 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 style and then going public and so um when i've been to see the michael palin center courses i think a lot of it is about accepting understanding acknowledging finding kind of ways to be rather than techniques in the sense of breathing or um but i think for some people those things work really well i don't know how it was for um for you did you use more enunciation breathing techniques as part of your michael palin course
0: we did the camp down method so uh, you talked very very slowly and then you just build up the pace and then that really taught me because it meant that i could do certain techniques in certain like now so i still use the technique but it, it, people made this thing that i just talking slowly but to me i'm just yeah. using that method on my head but mine's always just just been on certain letters and like like it's been on certain pronunciations like h's A. so i so i used to find signs so hello really hard to say and i find so i used to find picking up the phone really difficult because hello was a really hard word so i used I to different techniques of picking up the phone but
1: that kind of technique, I totally understand. That that, that yeah. kind of technique makes sense to me. Uh, I would think of that as being a learning how to deal with it technique yeah. as opposed to um, the other kind of techniques.
0: Yeah, and but then it was really weird that going to work from home from the pandemic, so when we went into lockdown, I the last thing I thought about was how much stamina would be affected because I just thought, oh, just did not think about it. I realised that I was stammering on different words to before to when I was at the office, but then I realised that, well, I actually need to conquer this saying hello, because how, how, how will I be able to talk to my team <laughs> if I need to call them all the time? And it was just really odd how the pandemic has made me come over certain things that's about good. my stammer. How has, stam- how has the pandemic affected your stammer?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. I think um, I guess the thing I learned to do, the technique I learned to do, was was finding ways to, as I said, ride blocks, and um, and you just in, to introduce disfluency, and one of the things which always used to annoy me, a little bit annoy me on the Today program was people would complain sometimes, listeners would complain, like small number of listeners, compared to the seven billion listening, like two people would say, why does he always start sentences with look? But actually, if you are, if you're on the Today programme, you're being interviewed by Nick Robinson, he ask you a question. If you start with, look, Nick, and then you start speaking, look, Nick, the reason why, look, Nick, look, John. And so those were basically launchers so if you do live radio, you, you launch in with a particular phrase, which it, so look, Nick, you know, all those are kind of comfortable consonant launches for me, and I guess um, because I'd done a lot of that for live radio, what Zoom um, and, and in the pandemic, I mean, it was, it was, there was quite a lot of continuity. I guess the only thing um, which I, I mean, like you, going around saying your name on a Zoom meeting would be bad.
0: But oh. the good, but oh, the good thing about God. Zoom
1: is you've you got the picture. So I think the thing I would do is wave. So if I kind of go, hi, it's Ed Balls. You know, I can't say it's Ed Balls. That would be a big block. But if you wave and say, hi, Ed Balls here then actually you launch with the wave and the, 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 the soft, you know, the, the consonant in you can do morning. Ed Ball's here. So I would I'd basically swallow my name under the launch. And that, that is the, um, and that's the same. You just do that on radio and television all the time. One of the things I learned on TV was I use my hands a lot and actually look the, the hand movement allows you to use the, the verbal launch without it being so noticeable. Andrew, the reason why, look, so the, 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 these, the, the, I think what you learn with a stammer is that there are lots of disfluencies which you can actively introduce in order to not have disfluencies you don't want. And then, if you listen to live broadcasting, I mean, live broadcasters aren't that fluent. They use disfluency all the time. It's just a normal. It's a normal way to um, to um, to to be. Well, that was good, you know. Oh. So, people. That's how people talk. And so, I think that with 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 um, I learned that the desire to speak a whole sentence as well was getting in the way of communication. Whereas if I um, embraced his fluency on my own terms, that actually ends up for the listener feeling much, much more fluent, which is why the thing I always feel is the one thing which is really hard is the Bible. Because you can't rewrite it. No. It's the only thing you can't rewrite. Everything else, when I'm doing Good Morning Britain, I've got the autocue in front of me and a script here. These days I'm actually, I can read off the autocue pretty well. But if I read the script and look at the autocue, I'll actually say it in a slightly different way. I basically adjust in real time the script and add in a little bit of, so, what are we onto next? You know, I'll add in these fillers, which are the things which launch me in and give me momentum and I'll do that even if I'm supposed to be reading a, um, a fixed script, because they don't mind, they like it. And so I think the, thing, the technique I learned was to, to, to fill and ride my blocks, to launch myself in, um, and, uh, and avoid particular hard consonants, which are, you know, I mean, if you, do you know the, the phrase, uh, I, actually I just stabbed it then, if you start a sentence saying, Having had my breakfast, I went for a walk. I mean, that is impossible for me to say. Having had, starting, starting with a ha, having yeah. had my breakfast, I went for a walk. I mean, so if somebody had written that for me, I would look at that and I'd be thinking, <gasps> yeah. so I couldn't say it. So instead, I'd, I'd have to find a way around it. So I would look at it and I'd say, so I'd had my breakfast that I went for a walk. I basically take out the hard H at the start of the sentence. So hard, had my breakfast, rather than having had my breakfast. And I would just, the way I would do it nowadays in real time is I'm continually adjusting speech to avoid bad launches and introduce good launches. And that is just, I mean, it just becomes a total habit. Wow. And to wrap
0: up this fantastic, Episode. I've got one last question for you. Ed. So, if you could give three pieces of advice to someone who stammers and and three pieces of advice to someone who doesn't stammer, what would they be?
1: Gosh. Well, I think that the for somebody who does um uh, stammer, I would say that acknowledging it and talking about it to your kind of family and friends, and then finding the person or the place which can help you is like a hugely important um, step to take. And not to take that means you'll always kind of struggle hard, you know, find it harder. And not everywhere works for everybody. So some people can do really well at Starfish or Maguire, but you know, for me and for you, that sort of city lit Michael Palin approach Really worked, um, but one go, going and going and, f- and finding not being scared of asking for help or getting therapy. Secondly, I think that um, for me, while I learned loads and loads of stuff, which I then put into practice doing that. We've just been talking about that. I think actually being public and talking about it was in a more widely and not being afraid to say to people in advance um, really, really helped me. And the third thing is that I think um, that just accepting it as being who you are and kind of really kind of internalising that thought doesn't mean that you have to like every aspect of it or that you can't... Deal with it better, or that you can't, um, you know, improve. There, 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 there is a sort of kind of a metric of doing better or doing worse with your stammer, but the fact that you own it and it's just who you are, and therefore it's not going to go away, and that's okay. That feels to be like a really important kind of third step. So, getting help, being public, and kind of owning it for yourself. And then I think for, for people who don't stammer. I, th- I think, I think first of all, as we were talking about a second ago with your what you said about words, that um, you really have to learn to listen properly if you spend time with somebody who um, who stammers, and that and it's worth it. But actually, there's a lot of um, kind of I think you learn quite a lot about respect as if you learn to um, to to uh, to listen properly. And then sort of, um, secondly, in any setting, whether it's in a family or business setting, um, on the one hand, I think to tease or mock or laugh is not on, it's not right and it makes things worse. And I know that, um, you know, as a society, we have taken that view for a long time about most disability or how people look, the color of their skin. But the idea that people is still acceptable to laugh at somebody who, who 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 stammers or to be pejorative, you know, that was a stuttering response. I think it's wrong to do that, and I think people shouldn't do that, and I think we should call that out. Okay. Um, and then, but then the 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 the, the third thing is to sort of to actively encourage and accept and be supportive when people do tell you. Um, because I think that's, I think it'd be very easy if you were the employer in in an interview to, um, to hear somebody say, I've got a bit of a stammer and, and think, well, is that a bad thing? And actually what they're doing is they're just telling you something about them. And, um, and in the vast majority of work settings, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't even make a difference if you're a professional speaker like me. So the idea that for most jobs it makes any difference, but actually to open your mind to difference being something which can not only be okay, but actually can have positive attributes. I mean, you will do better at the jobs you do because of your stammer. And you just want other people to understand and accept that. So those would be my three things. To um, to learn to listen, to not um, lo- to ever get involved in laughing or mocking but instead to see the positive.
0: Wow! And those are fantastic pieces of 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 ad, 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 advice. And and thank you so much for joining me today. And it it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I mean for you just to tell your story, what it's like having a stammer, but just proving that having a stammer shouldn't hold you back. So thank you.
1: Yeah. Well, look, William, you uh. You're a great advert for the Michael Palin Centre and all Thank the you. fundraising we do for Action for Stammering Children to kind of get more young people going through the um, the Palin Centre and to you know, the fact that it has had such a huge impact upon you, but that you're using that to uh, to get the message out to other young people that they aren't on their own and that there's lots of ways in which you can not only get support but actually to kind of get the benefits in the way that you've done. So um, it was a great, it was a great. Privilege to be on your podcast, and congratulations! It's good to it's good to see a proper role model in action.
0: Thank you. So, thank you to our listeners for joining us today for our very Christmas special. As I've mentioned, we've got some really exciting guests coming on in the new year, uh, and I'm very excited to see the podcast grow. So, it would be great. So, if you could follow us on Instagram and Twitter, where we post all our exciting updates and facts. So, see you next one in two weeks for, for our New Year's Eve special which you'll find out who the guest is then. So thank you so much.